Good morning, everyone. And once again, welcome to the Easter morning service at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. The title of this morning's sermon is Jesus' First Words, which might lead you to think that we'd be covering the spoken words of Jesus as a baby or a toddler. But the title is actually meant to direct our attention to Jesus' first words after the resurrection from rising from the dead. One popular trivia question is, is what were Jesus' final words on the cross? What were the seven sayings of Jesus? I think most of us could answer that question with some pretty fair accuracy. But how well could we do with the question of what was Jesus' first words after the resurrection? I would be surprised if many Christians would know the answer to that question. It's located in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 15. And it's a question directed to Mary Magdalene. Woman, why are you weeping? So now you might be saying to yourselves, well, that explains why I didn't know the answer to that trivia question. Because when you compare it to Jesus' final quotes on the cross, they really, that, that one after the resurrection really doesn't seem to have as much application to our lives. Like the comments from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And today you will be with me in paradise. And of course the memorable, it is finished. But this morning I will set out to convince you that Jesus' first words after the resurrection Woman, why are you weeping? Do indeed have applications in our lives today. Not that we're typically encountering Christians publicly weeping, but I think it's possible that if Jesus came up alongside a Christian today in the same fashion that he did with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus on that first resurrection Sunday, he might ask questions very similar to why are you weeping? For instance, he might ask, why are you sad? Or why are you constantly grumbling? Or he may just sum up our general attitude with this question. Why is your temperament so gloomy? Jesus wouldn't be asking these questions because he's unfamiliar with the answer. He would be asking these questions because we seem unfamiliar with our circumstances. Christians are walking by sight, not by faith. Living as if we believe in the crucifixion of Christ, that he died for our sins, but not living as if we believe in the resurrection of Christ that he's alive today. So let's put the weeping Mary Magdalene under the microscope this morning. 
But first, a warning. The four Gospels describe a lot of activity that was happening on that first Easter morning. And it's interesting and challenging to see how all the pieces fit together to support the historical fact and significance of the resurrection. We will be skipping over the majority of these events. You will no doubt find yourself thinking, hey, this guy should be talking more about Peter or the angels or the shroud or why Jesus said, don't cling to me. But we are only traveling one road this morning with few stops. We have one destination to reach. We'll be driving right on past a number of scenic overlooks. So be warned. The sermon will have the following outline. First, we'll remind ourselves of the context and the background around the conversation between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Second, I will make the point that Jesus expects us to be familiar and have faith in what the Bible says about the resurrection. And he doesn't seem to have a lot of patience when we don't. And third, and the last point, will address why it's important to live as if Jesus' three-year ministry ended with the resurrection, not as if it ended with the crucifixion. The text we'll be covering this morning is in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 10 through 16. But first, let us pray. Father, as we read and think about this passage of Scripture this morning, may you open our eyes to new revelation concerning how we think about the presence of Jesus in our lives today. Affect our hearts, souls, and minds in new ways through the leading of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you'll open your Bibles, go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, We'll read verses 10 through 16. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have lain him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. As we we begin to visualize the events of the first Easter morning and establish the context, we need to begin a few verses back while it's still dark. Mary Magdalene and some other women are arriving to the area of Jesus' tomb to complete the burial process, which was earlier rushed due to the approaching Sabbath. 
The stone had been rolled in front of the tomb. It was sealed, and a Roman guard was stationed to ensure Jesus' body wasn't stolen. If you recall from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, the Jewish leaders had gone to Pilate with these words. Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and that the last fraud will be worse than the first. The Bible commentator John Walvoord points out that it's ironic that the Jewish leaders, the fierce opponents of Jesus and his message, seem to anticipate the significance of an apparent resurrection event more than any of Jesus' followers. While the chief priests and the Pharisees were thinking ahead at a strategic level, to prevent the potential spread of a messianic Jesus, Jesus' closest followers were hiding in a locked room out of fear. But on that dark Easter morning when Mary Magdalene arrives to the tomb, she sees the sealed stone had been rolled away. So she leaves and runs to where Peter and John are residing to share the conclusion that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. I have to admit this part of the narrative makes me a little uncomfortable because I've done this same type of thing so many times, quickly jumping to conclusions because I'm walking by sight and not by faith. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. The pattern usually goes something like this. You come across something that you weren't expecting and it has the potential to be bad news. You immediately assume the worst and give no thought to potential alternative causes or outcomes. Or, and this is important, you give no thought to what the Bible or the Holy Spirit could tell you about the situation. Then you run to share your conclusions with other people and you convey your assumptions as if they were facts. So the other people don't have the actual facts, they only have your assumed facts and your conclusion. If Mary Magdalene had delivered to Peter and John only what she actually observed at the tomb, she would have told them this. The stone has been rolled away from Jesus' tomb. That's all she knew. The rest of her report that they have taken him and that we don't know where they have lain him were assumptions. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will keep your paths straight. Mary was leaning on her own understanding that morning, and that path ended up being paved with her tears. If we could just go back in time and suggest to her, maybe, Mary, just maybe, 
The stone rolled away doesn't indicate a desecration of the tomb, but a resurrection from the tomb. Moving on in the narrative, we find after receiving Mary Magdalene's report, Peter and John ran to the tomb and Mary followed them. Now, I don't know if Mary arrived back at the tomb after Peter and John had already left the tomb area or if she arrived while they were still there inspecting the evidence because we need to keep in mind that Mary had already ran the distance from the tomb to where Peter and John were residing and now Peter and John run to the tomb and so she would already be tired by that point and so she would be behind them significantly but either way the scripture does not record any conversation taking place between Mary and the disciples in the tomb area then in verse 10 we read the disciples went back to their homes and here's what I warned you about earlier I said there wouldn't be any pulling off the road for sightseeing today we won't be talking about what Peter and John observed at the tomb we're only traveling the Mary Magdalene Road for now. So now we have Mary by herself. And in verse 11 it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. I suppose if you were a nearby observer, a stranger, perhaps in an elevated location looking down on the scene of Mary Magdalene at the tomb it would appear to be an ordinary but sad sight the sight wouldn't be puzzling to us at all there's a woman standing outside the tomb the burial location of somebody she was obviously close to and there she is weeping I should note that the word weeping doesn't indicate someone politely shedding tears into a handkerchief. No, it's crying hard, sobbing, wailing, perhaps uncontrollably. But even if we were a stranger without having any background information whatsoever, we wouldn't need to ask ourselves, why does a woman weep next to a tomb? The setting would make her behavior obvious. But you and I are not strangers to the backstory behind this woman's weeping. We know this woman was a longtime friend of the deceased, part of a close circle of friends and followers. The dead man had been the most important figure in Israel for the past three years. He had healed lepers, cured the blind, raised the dead. He had removed demonic spirits from a number of people including this woman he loved and cared for people who lived on the fringes of society like this woman he was without any sin but was tortured and then executed by crucifixion of which this woman was a direct observer and then this woman is dealt, dealt an additional blow a knockout punch to her emotional state, if you will. Jesus's mutilated body with holes in the hands and feet and in his side 
his face disfigured from being punched and slapped and from having a crown of thorns embedded into his head, a corpse necessitating the burial preparation procedure perhaps more than any other body. And that body was now missing. Imagine, if you will, going to a funeral home after the death of a loved one, only to have the staff tell you, yeah, the body's missing. I guess somebody stole it. Wouldn't the cumulative emotional toll of first the death and then the missing body cause you to just sit down and weep? But continuing with, continuing with verse 11, we read, As she wept, she stopped, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Several years ago, Pastor Chris included in one of his sermons things you shouldn't say to a person grieving over the death of a loved one. For instance, you shouldn't try to provide a theological explanation behind the death. Nor should you say, I know just how you feel. Basically, Pastor Chris's conclusion was that you should just be there for the grieving person and say as little as possible. And of course, that was sound advice. But in this instance, the angel says, woman, why are you weeping? I'm pretty sure this wouldn't be a pastor Pastor Chris approved question at a funeral. Clearly, at least one of the reasons the angels are posing this question to Mary is because Jesus isn't actually dead. As it turns out, Jesus is standing nearby. But something is still missing from this picture in order for the question's timing to be appropriate. Let me give you an example to explain what I mean. Suppose a woman had a husband who was an officer in the army. The husband goes off to a foreign country to fight in a war. After a few months, the woman receives notice that the husband has been killed in action when his helicopter went down in a jungle. He's presumed dead, but the body was never recovered. At his funeral, the wife is weeping. But let's say you have information proving the husband is actually still alive and well. So you go up to the grieving woman at the funeral and ask, Woman, why are you weeping? Well, obviously she would be weeping because as far as this woman knows, the husband is dead. It's quite appropriate for her to weep, even if in reality her husband's alive. So here's the additional piece of information making the question to Mary, woman, why are you weeping, appropriate. Not only was Jesus alive, but Mary Magdalene was expected to know he was alive. And why? Because Jesus had said on multiple occasions during his ministry that after being killed, he would rise from the dead on the third day. So just to summarize my point, 
the angel's question to Mary, which is repeated by Jesus word for word, woman, why are you weeping, is appropriate for two reasons. One, Jesus is not dead. And two, she was expected to know he was resurrected because Jesus had said so on numerous occasions. But a clever person might say, sure, Jesus described his death and resurrection on several occasions during his ministry, but how do you know he wasn't speaking only to his inner circle of disciples? How do you know Mary ever had the opportunity to hear the resurrection prophecy? We know because in Luke chapter 24, a parallel Easter Sunday narrative, it speaks of a group of women encountering two angels at the tomb. Mary Magdalene had started out with this group that morning, that morning, but she had already split off by this point to notify Peter and John of the missing body, as we talked about earlier. But listen what the angel tells these women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. This was the same group of women who followed and supported Jesus as far back as Galilee. The time Jesus spent in Galilee was the earlier part of his ministry. The angel is reminding the women of information Jesus had apparently shared with them too. And note how it confirms the fact. And they, the women, remembered his words. So now when we read the angels and Jesus asking Mary, why she was weeping we see the timing was appropriate she was expected to know that he would rise on the third day and additionally we see Jesus having the same expectation of other followers let's consider the encounter occurring later that same resurrection day on a road leading to the village Emmaus the account in Luke says two followers of Jesus were walking along the road. And note this, they were sad. Let's see what Jesus tells them early on in the encounter as we note in Luke 24, verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice that Jesus addresses them as foolish and slow of heart to believe. The word foolish, Jesus uses, is defined as unwise, unintelligent, and not understanding. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 where he addresses the recipients with some of the most severe language in any of his epistles. When Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And when Jesus labels the Emmaus travelers as slow of heart, 
appropriate synonyms are dull, inactive in mind, slow to apprehend or believe, and stupid. Imagine later telling of your encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and someone asking, what did he say, man? What did he say? Well, he kind of said I was stupid. But the point is this. Jesus' expectation is that his followers know and believe what is written about him in the scriptures. Or as in Mary's case, what Jesus spoke personally. Mary Magdalene was distraught, weeping. Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? You should know I've been resurrected. The travelers on the road to Emmaus were sad and confused. Jesus says, you're being unwise. Your minds are dull. You're slow to apprehend the truth. You should have known from the scriptures that these things would happen. Don't miss a commonality between the two situations. In both instances, the people were weeping and sad about the missing Jesus, but Jesus was standing right beside them. Imagine being all gloomy and sad and grumbling, and the creator of the universe, who just died for you because he loves you, is standing right beside you, resurrected from the dead, is it any wonder Jesus doesn't appear to have a lot of patience for this type of behavior? And now I will address the third point, what I meant when I said Jesus expects us to live as if his three-year ministry ended with the resurrection, not with the crucifixion. In 1980, when I became a Christian, in the 1980s, excuse me, a popular approach in evangelism was to ask the following question. If you were to die today, what assurance do you have that you would go to heaven? The correct answer was something along the lines of that the person was trusting in Jesus' death on the cross, paid for their sins so that when they died, they would enter heaven. And if the person didn't give the correct biblical answer, then a door was open for a potential evangelism opportunity. And, and I'm not saying that there was anything wrong with this approach to evangelism, unless Jesus' dying on the cross for a person's sins represents the totality of their theology. And if that's the case, the person is still a Good Friday Christian who never quite advanced to Easter and the resurrection. And if the fruit of our religion is only activated upon death, if that's the point when our Christianity kicks in, then what about right now? The Westminster Catechism, which is a summary of Christian doctrine written in the 1600s, has as its first subject what is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer, according to the catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
I realize that a catechism is not the same as scripture where inerrancy and authority are concerned, but I'm fascinated by the statement that our chief end or purpose in life besides glorifying God involves enjoying him forever. People talk about enjoying a good meal, enjoying a good movie, a nice sunset, all kinds of things. But have you ever considered if you're enjoying God now? Would we be characterized as people who enjoy God or would we be characterized as sad, grumblers, and kind of gloomy? Is it at all possible to be enjoying God and at the same time to be gloomy? I had a friend in a small home study group when we lived out west. He used to describe his joy as something very deep and unshakable, like some kind of foundational anchor that wasn't really visible above the surface. Sounded very theological. And during several years of knowing him, I can attest he was correct. I rarely, if ever, witnessed joy coming from him. It was indeed very deep. Praise God, right? No. I say no. On this Easter Sunday, I say Jesus has not only been crucified, he is risen. If the Bible is true, and I know it is, Jesus doesn't just stand beside me, he lives within me now through the Holy Spirit. I don't want a Christianity that has a deep, hidden joy that only bubbles up to the surface after I'm dead. I want to be like the Apostle Paul, who from a Roman prison wrote to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul writes rejoice. And why? Because the Lord is at hand. And why is he at hand? Because he is risen. Finally, I'd like to conclude with two comments. I want to ensure I haven't been misunderstood on a particular but important point. If you encounter someone who has suffered the loss of a loved one or has suffered any real tragedy, your approach should never be, woman, why are you weeping? I want to be clear on that. That person's loss is real. It's right for them to mourn. Their loved one has, at least temporarily, been removed from them. Silent comfort is the best approach. Point number two in conclusion. If you've never become even a Good Friday Christian, and what I mean by that is you feel no assurance that Jesus has rescued you, 
you feel no assurance that the Holy Spirit is living within you, then consider making this Easter Sunday the day you turn your life over to the Savior. Cast your cares and your eternal destiny into his hands. Easter Sunday is a day of new beginnings. Let it be your new beginning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as our faith permits, please open our eyes and our spirits to your glorious presence. If we've been sad or grumblers or gloomy for so long that it's become part of our spiritual personality, please don't let it continue even one more day. Mary Magdalene began the first Easter Sunday in darkness, weeping, but you opened her eyes and filled her with the joy of your presence. Would you do the same for us today? Amen.